as we dive into your word and we purpose to, to understand you and the significance of, of your birth and the gift that um, you gave us in sending your son. Lord, I pray uh, that you would just open our eyes, that we would be able to see things the way that, that you see them. God, that we would be able to, to respond in the way that you desire us to respond, that we wouldn't um, grow dull or, or bored with the Christmas story, God, because it truly is the greatest story ever told. So help us to, to, to get excited about all the significance of you coming as a baby. Uh, help us to, to understand uh, what you want us to understand. Speak to our hearts and our minds and, and challenge us to, to respond the way you desire us to respond. So we ask for the power of your spirit to guide us in truth. In your name, amen. What was the greatest Christmas gift you ever remember receiving? I really want you to think about this. Maybe it was when you were a kid, maybe an adult, uh, maybe it was an action figure, uh, maybe it was a Barbie doll, uh, maybe it was a, a toy car or a remote control car, uh, maybe it was an actual car, could have been many things. For me, thinking back on this, I think the gift that made me the happiest was when we got a trampoline. See, me and my family, we do this thing called Big Christmas. We have regular Christmas, and then we do Big Christmas. And Big Christmas is when me and all my cousins and their kids and my grandma, aunts, and uncles all get together. There's about 30 plus of us. Okay, so we do Chris, Big Christmas every year. We'll be doing it again this year. It's not normally on Christmas. We have our normally normal family tradition on Christmas, and then we have this bigger family tradition on Christmas. And it was a big family Christmas. And when we woke up, all of us, we walked outside to find a trampoline. And we got a trampoline for Christmas. I can't tell you how ecstatic we were. We didn't leave the trampoline. All the other presents were insignificant compared to that trampoline. Not only did my cousins get one, but we had one waiting for us back on the other coast of Florida. We would play on that thing day and night. Absolutely obsessed for years. It truly was the greatest Christmas present I ever received. But it pales in comparison to the gift that God gave us in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. To think that God came in the flesh, put on human flesh, became a baby, born in a manger. This was the ultimate act of humility, but it was also the greatest gift we could ever receive. And that's the title of this teaching, The Greatest Gift. In Luke chapter 2, we will look at the birth of Jesus and purpose to understand the significance of this amazing gift that God would send His Son. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we're doing a series on Advent. Advent's really celebrating the first and second coming of Christ. We talked about the second coming of Christ last couple weeks. We did a series on, on Revelation, basically like a summary. So if you weren't here and you're interested in that, I think we're out of CDs, but you can look it up um, online. And it's, and it's pretty cool, some of the stuff that we talked about. But now we're going to look at the Lord's first coming, specifically him being born into the world and some of the events that surrounded that first coming. So if you would with me, 
in Luke chapter two, verse one, it says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus, also known as Caesar Octavian, he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. This guy was the real deal. See, Rome got split up by basically three emperors. And what Caesar Augustus did was he basically overcame all of them. And he became the ultimate ruler of Rome, which was the main world power during that time period. Now, before this, Rome, typically their government operated like a republic. You had a Senate and the Senate voted on different things. Uh, but when Caesar Augustus came into power and overcame Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and all that stuff we've read in the history books, after that happened, he basically came like a, became like a dictator. Um, he was the Caesar and he was basically looked to as if he was a god. They, they worshipped him like he was a god. Now, Caesar Augustus, he accomplished accomplished a lot and you can read some history about this but he brought Rome to a, a very um, wealthy uh, prominent time period in history the economy was great he was basically like a political savior if you will okay so many people looked up to this man he was a good leader um as far as the world standards go, okay, he was corrupt as well, uh, but he did accomplish a lot in Rome. So what Caesar Augustus does here is he issues this decree that everyone had to go and get registered back uh, from in the town or city where their family was from. Now, the reason he did this was so that he could make sure everybody was paying taxes. Okay, he wanted to make sure everybody was paying their taxes to Caesar because you had multiple taxes. You know, you had tithing, you had the temple tax, you had all these different things. But remember, Jesus, he talks to the Pharisees um, uh, close to the, the end of his life and, 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 and they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And we talked quite a bit about that when we taught on it. But the point was that Caesar was doing this thing so he could reinforce everyone paying taxes. Okay, we want to know who you are. We want to know your lineage. We want to know your name. We want to know where you live so we can make sure we can hold you accountable to paying the taxes. But Luke, he gives us another historical fact. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 2. It says this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Why is Luke telling us this? Luke, he's a physician, he's a doctor, but he's also a journalist. And, and how he goes through this gospel is basically he looks at all these eyewitness testimonies. He's literally like interviewing him and getting the details of the story. He's talking to people that, that actually experienced Christ and experienced healings, probably talked to Mary, probably talked to his brothers, probably talked to a lot of these different people. So he's making sure the story lines up with history and he wants us to know that this isn't just some myth. Okay, that God came as a baby. He wants us to know that we can look at other historical documents to solidify the fact that this actually happened. And we can look through history to confirm that this guy Quirinius was governing Syria when Caesar Augustus issued this decree. Luke wants us to know that we can count on the text. We can count on the story that he's communicating to us. That's why he adds so many details to give us confidence. 
in Luke chapter two, verse three, it says, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own house. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth from Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So we see that both Mary uh, and Joseph were of the lineage of David. Why is that significant? Because the Messiah was for, referred to as the son of David. The scepter would not depart from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. There would be an everlasting ruler from that tribe. Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of that. We know the Messiah had to come from the lineage of David. This is why this is significant. But what's also significant is the fact that Joseph and Mary, they lived in Galilee, the region of Galilee, specifically a place called Nazareth. But they had to go to Bethlehem. Why do they have to go to Bethlehem? Is it because of this decree? Partially. But we have to remember, back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, I'll read it to you. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it's right after Jonah we see that this was a prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Look, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, like the smallest town in Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Okay, so we see this eternal ruler that's going to come from Bethlehem. The prophets knew, the scholars knew, this is a direct reference to the Messiah. Jesus didn't get uh, just, he, he, when he was born into the world, it doesn't mean he was, he was created into the world. He's always existed, okay? He's eternally begotten by God the Father, but he came as a baby and he came to fulfill this specific scripture. Now, when we look at it, at first glance, you can look at, wow, okay, Caesar Augustus. This guy's the real deal, the ultimate authority. Everybody has to listen to what he says. He's basically sovereign over the nation. But when we look at this scripture, we see that Caesar Augustus is just a pawn in God's plan. He's just a pawn in God's plan. This powerful ruler, the most powerful man on the earth at this time is a puppet. In God's hands. It's just fascinating. It's absolutely amazing. How does God get the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem when his parents are from Nazareth? Let's get the world power to issue this decree that everyone has to return to the place where their lineage was from. So God used Caesar Augustus. I don't know how he did this. Put it on his heart, whatever, to get Jesus to Bethlehem so he would be able to fulfill this scripture. And when you look at that, the extent of God's sovereignty and how he places all authority in our lives and he calls us to submit to authority, we can't minimize that. It's so important. Think about if Joseph and Mary wouldn't have submitted to Caesar's authority here. What? Now we have a flaw and a contradiction in Scripture. The Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. uh, And he actually wasn't born in Bethlehem. You know where I'm going with this. The point is, is that God places all authority in our lives. And he calls us to submit to authority, whether it's righteous or corrupt. Because he's got a bigger thing going on. Okay, he's got a bigger plan, and it's not, it's not always as we see it. When we choose to rebel against authority, 
We're deterring God's plan. We're, 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 we're messing with it. We're getting involved in something that we shouldn't get involved with. God says, hey, I'm going to use the authority in your life to teach you personal things. But I'm also going to use the authority in your life to do a lot. To, to fulfill my agenda. When you rebel against it, that's why he says you're rebelling against God. Because I got a plan. Had Joseph and Mary not been obedient and submitting to the authority of Caesar... A pagan, right? This isn't like uh, the, the king of Israel that's walking with the Lord. This is a pagan. And God put this authority in their life to accomplish his will and ultimately fulfill his word. In Luke chapter 2, verse 6, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So, um, Nazareth is about uh, 80 miles away from Bethlehem. That's a serious journey. Okay, so we don't know how pregnant Mary was when she traveled. We always have the picture of the eight-month pregnant Mary with this big belly, right? Uh, we don't know. So they could have came to Bethlehem a few months in advance. We're not, we can't be confident based on what the text tells us, but we do know that she traveled pregnant. And I don't care how pregnant you are traveling 80 miles when you're pregnant. Um, that's a, that's a difficult task. Not that I can tell you from experience. Um, but, uh, but when Elizabeth was pregnant, it was rough. She was sick all the time. And you know, you women can relate to that. I would not want to bring her on an 80 mile walk with me. I can't imagine what that would be like. Anyways, Mary did it. She went with Joseph to Bethlehem. Now, she didn't necessarily have to go with Joseph to Bethlehem. It was mandatory for the men to go. Uh, we don't know why she went, other than the fact that it was to fulfill Scripture. Uh, but she might have just wanted to get out of town. Why? Because Mary, yeah, the virgin, right? That's what her people are. Yeah, the virgin that's pregnant. Yeah, yeah, right. Like some angel came to Mary, uh, and, and, and told her that she's going to be, uh, she's gonna, she's gonna give birth to the Messiah and be conceived by the Holy Spirit and all these things are gonna happen. A lot of people are probably doubting it. A lot of people are probably bashing her. She's probably got a lot of shame. Cause she, there's probably people that don't trust her. So maybe that was the reason that she left. We don't know. Ultimately, again, it was to fulfill scripture. So it came time for Jesus to be born. Look what happens. Verse seven. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The fact that Mary and Joseph couldn't get a room in this end tells us something about where they were at financially. Okay, they were dirt poor. He's a poor carpenter. She's a maidservant. They didn't have a lot of material possessions. And we even see that later on. They weren't even uh, able to, to sacrifice uh, a lamb for uh, for Jesus. They had to use two doves because they couldn't afford it. So they're in a very poor financial situation. If they were in a better financial situation or had a, a greater name, a more prominent name, then they would have kicked someone else out of the end and said, Mary and Joseph, you're staying here. We're going to get rid of these other people. But that wasn't the case because that was the scenario that Mary and Joseph were in. They were very poor. So there was no room in this inn. Jesus had to be born in a manger. A manger was a feeding trough for animals. Have you ever been to a farm? Okay. And, and seen where like livestock and cows or pigs eat out of? 
You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, maybe. Maybe you've seen it on TV or movies or something like that. Maybe you've never been to a farm. But you know what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus was born in. Okay, think about this. Like you see pigs and donkeys and livestock, all these things like slobbering, getting all... This is not where you wanted would want to give birth to a child. Okay, this was nasty. This was disgusting, but it was all they had. Now, Mary, being the woman that she was, she probably cleaned it up, you know, put some nice fresh hay, the whole deal. But the reality of it is nobody would want to have their baby in a manger. This is disgusting, but this is the humility of our Lord. I want to point out something here. In verse 7, it says, Because there was no room for them in the end. There was no room for Jesus. This is the first point. Make room for the greatest gift. Make room for the greatest gift. The people at the end, they didn't make room for Jesus. But this isn't just a representation of the people at the end, the manager or whoever. This is a representation of the entire world. See, the creator came to his creation to dwell among them and they didn't make room for him. We don't want you. We don't want your authority. We don't want you to be our king. We would rather have Caesar as our king. That's exactly how they responded to him before they crucified him. It says in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. Verse 10. says... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He made the world, he comes to the world to save the world, and his own, they don't receive him. In other words, they reject him. We don't want your salvation. We don't want anything to do with you. And that's the response that the world gives Jesus. We don't have any room for you here. We don't have any room for you in our school. We don't have any room for you in our job. We don't have any room for you in our personal life. But the reality of it is, we got to make room for Jesus. we got to make room for Him in every aspect of our lives. He wants to be intimately involved in our lives, in everyone in the world's lives. He, he desires all men and women to be saved. And, and He even makes an effort to do this. How does He do it? In Revelation chapter 3, in Revelation chapter 3, Verse 20, speaking to the church of the Laodiceans, the lukewarm church that basically kicked Jesus out of the church, okay? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. He stands at the door and knocks. He says, I want you to make room for me in your life. In fact, I want to be involved with your entire life. And we have that responsibility. Maybe you've invited Jesus into your life. But have you given him access to every single room in your life? What do I mean? So, pretend... You have a family member that you're going to have over for this holiday, okay? Maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a sister, somebody that you love, somebody that you care for, somebody that you trust. And pretend like you did this. They come over and you say, hey, here's the deal. You can stay in the guest room, but you can't leave the guest room. 
You can only stay in this guest room. You can't come to the dining room. You can't come to the family room. You certainly can't come into the master bedroom or our bathroom. We're going to lock you up in here. Okay. And you knock on the door when, when you need something. We'll bring you water. We'll bring you food. All that. But, but, but this is where you need to stay and you can't leave here. What am I saying? Sometimes that's what we do with Jesus. We let him into one area of our life. Here, you can have a guest room, but I don't want you having these other rooms. The Lord wants to be a part of every single room in our life. He wants to have not just part of our hearts, but our whole hearts. He wants to be intimately involved in every decision of our life. He wants to be involved in our relationships with friends and family. He wants to be involved with our jobs. That's why His name is Emmanuel, God with us. But not just God with us. God, He comes and lives inside of us and He wants to fully live inside of us. But do we say, no, Jesus, caution tape here. You can't come in here. Because see, he'll stand at the door and knock, but it's our responsibility to open the door. He'll knock and he'll knock and he'll knock and he'll knock and he'll knock. But until we open the door for him to come into that area of our lives, he's just going to stand there knocking. He wants to be a part of that. He wants to fix that. He wants to heal that. He wants to make that area better. But when we say no, you can't have access there. Not only is it breaking his heart, it's destroying our lives. He wants to be intimately involved in every single aspect of our lives. Don't lock Jesus up in the guest room. Give him access to everything. See, these people that were managing the end, they had no room for Jesus. We've got to make room for him. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says, Now, There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So shepherds at this point in history, um, they weren't highly looked upon. And in fact, they were like the, the lowest of the low in the society. They were often thieves and criminals and people didn't trust them so much. So at this period in time, uh, you couldn't even uh, use a shepherd's testimony in the courts meant nothing. Why? They're liars and thieves. They would travel around with their sheep, go from town to town and take what they could. So shepherds are sinners. They're outcasts. But these are the men that God would choose to deliver the message of the gospel to. Why? Because it's a picture of us. We're sinners. We're outcasts. We're the ones that society didn't want, but yet God wants and God loves and God will give us a purpose just as he gives these shepherds a purpose. Let's see the message that the shepherds get from this angel in verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So this angel, he comes and he brings good tidings. What are good tidings? It's good news. Literally, he shared the gospel with the shepherds. Now, when the shepherds encounter this angel, it says they were greatly afraid. We often see that that's the case in the Bible. When people encounter angels, they're afraid. It's this glorious, powerful being. But recognizing 
where the shepherds stand in that culture, they're sinners, they're thieves, they're outcasts, they probably had even more of a reason to be afraid. I just imagine one of them's behind one of the sheep counting money, and then here comes the angel. Hey, the last thing they're probably thinking is there's going to be good news, okay? They're probably thinking, well, we got some bad news. Finally, God caught up to us. This angel is going to come to wipe us out because of our hideous lifestyles. But that wasn't the case. It was grace upon grace. And this angel delivered to them the message of the gospel. And look what he says. Verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord, what the world needed was not an economic solution, was not a, a political problem solver. What the world needed then and still needs now is a savior. And we get so caught up with things that really are insignificant, not saying that they're not important and having political views and looking into this stuff and understanding it. It, it, it is important, but sometimes we get focused on the wrong thing. We think that if the economy's better, all my problems will be solved. It's not true. The problem with man is not an economic problem. It's a problem of the heart. And the man, what he needs is a savior. This is why God sent Jesus to save the world from their sins, to change their hearts, to transform their lives. The savior would be born as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. So when you look at this phrase wrapped in swaddling clothes in the original Greek, it literally means torn off pieces of garments, meaning it's not like they had, you know, like what we had this nice blanket for the baby. They were likely ripping off pieces of their garments just to wrap them up so he wouldn't be cold. This also emphasizes the financial situation that Joseph and Mary were in. They were using anything and everything they possibly could to take care of this newborn baby that's lying in a manger now this is crazy so we go from this glorious angel this powerful angel mighty angel with a mighty message to a baby in a feeding trough when you look at god's glory it's so magnificent it can be magnified through marvel it can also be magnified in humility and each one is is just as glorious the point is, it's important for us to, to recognize the glory of God in the humble things and the little things, but also obviously recognize God's glory in the bigger things. The baby was actually more glorious than the angel, but without spiritual eyes, no one would ever see that. This angel is the savior. The big angel, or sorry, this, this baby is the savior. This angel works for the baby. <laughs> Literally, this baby created that angel. But at first glance, we can look at a baby and like, well, it's a baby. You know, some people love babies, some people not so much. So it's a baby. But no, it's not just a baby. It's the Savior of the Lord, the glorious God that sent the glorious Son into this world as a free gift for us to bring us salvation. Luke chapter 2, verse 13. And suddenly there was the angel... Sorry, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. As if one angel wasn't enough, God sends a multitude of angels. 
Maybe he didn't send the multitude at first because the guys wouldn't have been able to handle it. Okay, now we got one. Now we got possibly potentially thousands of angels. And what are these angels doing? They are praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Point number two, praise God for the greatest gift. Praise God for the greatest gift. Now, these are angels praising God for a gift that he's giving us. The angels, they don't get to experience redemption. If a fallen angel falls once, sends once, that's it. They're always a fallen angel. They get one chance. They don't get the grace through the gospel. That's not an opportunity for them. They marvel at the fact that God gives us the opportunity to sin and repent, go back to him, receive his grace and experience those open arms. The angels don't get that gift, but they praise God because of the gift that he gives us. Like that's selflessness. That's, that's amazing. They praise God for a gift that somebody else gets. How much more should we praise God for the gift that we get? The free gift of salvation. We should praise God constantly, continuously for this free gift that he gave us in sending his only son. In fact, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, if you want to write it down. Remember, it's the triumphal entry. He walks through the gates of Jerusalem and everyone's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, God, save us. You're our king, you're our rightful ruler, yada, 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 he says, If these don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. He says, if these don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because all creation recognizes the Savior, the Lord of the universe, except some humans. You know the expression, uh, dumb as a rock? (laughs) Well... These rocks are smarter than a lot of people. And honestly, we would be uh, probably wise to be as smart as these rocks, right? Praising God constantly for the salvation that he's freely given us. Peter, he says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1. Rejoicing, praising God for our salvation. He says this, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, If need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, think about the incorruptible inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. Think about the fact that you've been saved, not because you deserve it, but actually, on the contrary, you didn't uh, uh, deserve this grace, yet God gave it to you freely because he loves you. This is something to rejoice about. This is something to get happy about, ecstatic about, excited about. But unfortunately, sometimes, especially if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, we don't really think of our salvation the same. It becomes something that we assume we're entitled to. Now, we would never say it, but sometimes we act like that. 
And it's something that we don't really have much zeal about anymore or excitement about. But that just can't be the way that it is. We should constantly praise God for the greatest gift that he gave us in sending his son to save us from ourselves. Now, I think the tendency is to, as we've walked with the Lord for a while, we tend to forget what he delivered us from. And we come to this place where the abundant life that we're experiencing now, we think it's normal. We think we deserve it. We expect it. But sometimes we got to remember how bad things were so that we'll praise him for saving us when we know he didn't deserve us. And as I was studying this and thinking about this, I was thinking about where I was before God saved me. And literally, I was living in a foreclosed house. I had no money, no water, no electricity, no food. I was about 130 pounds seriously 130 pounds soaking wet i looked like i was on death's door god saved me from that he he saved me from that and it's easy to forget how bad things were but i'm grateful and thankful as we look at passages like this i can look back and go what you saved me from how am i even here like how am i how did you do all these things in my life to get me to this place if that's not something to praise god about i don't know what is the point is we got to remember where we were we got to remember what god did we got to be able to to really fathom the the depth and height and weight uh, of his love the extent of his grace he gave that to us freely not Because we deserved it. So these angels, they praise God for our gift of a Savior. And it goes on to say, in verse 15, So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. See, the shepherds, they didn't, they didn't just dwell in the experience that they had with the angel. They wanted to see, see the real thing. They wanted to see the fulfillment of the message that the angel gave him. Yes, they just saw an amazing thing. Like, I don't even think we can imagine it. These glorious angels singing, praising God, beautiful voices, the whole deal. But they didn't stay there. No, instead, it says they sought out Jesus. They came with haste to see the Savior that the angel we're talking about this is point number three seek out the greatest gift seek out the greatest gift that's what they did they didn't say like great message and all uh we're just going to get back to tending to our flock no they're like we want to know this and understand this the savior came into the world i want to seek him out i want to know him better who is this little baby i want to know what he looks like i want to know what he acts like i want to know what his personality is i just want to know him to the fullest degree and that's really what our response should be to the message of the gospel as well that we seek out the lord diligently That we seek Him out with everything we have, with haste, with an urgency. Why? Because He loves us. Because we love Him. But it also says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He's a rewarder. Yes, main reward, main prize, main gift. 
is salvation. But there are other rewards that followed that. And we won't experience those other rewards unless we're diligently seeking Him. Now, the heart can't be, I'm seeking God for blessings. That can never be the heart. I'm seeking God because I want to know who this baby is. I want to know who Jesus Christ is. I want to know Him on a deeper and deeper level every single day. And the rewards, they, they come after that. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. The point is is these shepherds weren't complacent. They weren't kicking back and saying, okay, that's great, we got a Savior. No, no, they sought Jesus out. They wanted to know Him intimately. Luke chapter 2, verse 17. Now, when they had seen Him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. All those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. What did these guys do with the message that was given to them? They shared it. They shared the greatest gift. That's point number four. Share the greatest gift. Share the greatest gift. They didn't keep it to themselves. Why? Because the gift of Jesus is too much for us to keep to ourselves. It's a gift that's not supposed to end with us. It's a gift that's meant to be shared. It's a gift that he gives us and it's supposed to overflow through us that we can't help give, give, give it away to other people. How? By sharing the message. That's exactly what these shepherds do. If we've truly received the gift of salvation, we shouldn't be able to help but speaking about it and preaching about it. And that's what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 20. In Acts 4, 20, we see John and Peter. Uh, they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And, and basically they said, we can't help but speak about the things that we've seen and heard. Like we have received the greatest gift the world has ever seen. We can't help but tell people about it. Like we have to. Like it's almost like I can't even control not telling people about it. I have to tell people about this gift this was the heart of the shepherds and it should be the heart of us see during this season a lot of people get caught up with the busyness they get caught up with the what gifts i want or what gifts i need to give and it and it's really become a season that um sadly uh christ always isn't in the center of it's the materialism has kind of become the god of christmas uh for the most part in our culture and it shouldn't be so so many people focus on the the material side of things and and what i need to get and what i need to give but jesus says in matthew chapter 16 what gain is it if you gain the whole world and and lose your soul Like if you have all the world has to offer, if you have all these material possessions, is it really worth it? If you don't have the one thing that you need, yes, one thing is needed and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's receiving the greatest gift. This is the message that we're called to share all the time, but especially during the holidays. Yeah, you're going to have some toys and some clothes and some things that a year from now, they're going to be in the dumpster and a few years from now. And you might enjoy them now, but they will be destroyed eventually. Our salvation is incorruptible. It can never be destroyed. And this is a gift that every single one of us can give. Not that we can save someone, but we can be the vessel that God uses to save someone. And really considering this, thinking about this, as Christmas Day approaches, 
who, who, who still has shopping to do? I think Elizabeth did all our shopping, hopefully. Um, <laughs> she's, she's a way better gift giver than I am. Uh, anyways, we, we can think about, hey, these are the people I need to get gifts for. And, and sometimes we're not in the best financial position to buy all the people that we want to buy gifts. So we got to say, oh, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. But we can't neglect the fact that this season is not about material possessions. It's about the gift of Jesus Christ. And once again, we can all share that. If you can open your mouth, you can share the gospel. These shepherds, they share the gospel. They share the message that they received and it's not like they sat under a rabbi for a few years before they went out and shared no they got a message that night and they shared it they delivered it immediately what did they say bible doesn't tell us probably something very similar to what the angel hey there's a baby that's going to save the world whatever they said it was simple they received a simple message and they delivered a simple message and what happened it says the people marveled they people the people marveled They didn't marvel at the speech of the shepherds. These guys weren't professional um, uh, speech writers or anything. They weren't professional communicators. They were shepherds. They probably talked more to sheep than they did people. Yet God used them to deliver a message. And the reason the people marveled wasn't because of the skills of the shepherds. It was because the power of the message. The point is, if the shepherds can do it, we can do it. You can do it. It doesn't take knowing everything, but it does take sharing what you do know. It can be so simple. Jesus loves you. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And this is what Jesus did in my life. And this is how he saved me. And and this is how things were. And maybe things aren't perfect, but they're a lot better than they used to be. It's a simple message that the Lord gives us simple people to deliver. I get Often people get afraid of sharing the gospel as we're going to go out and do today here uh, in a couple hours. And most of that fear is just based on lies. It's thinking, hey, somebody's going to ask me a question that, that, that I don't know. And the lie is, I need to know everything before I share the gospel. That is not true. These shepherds probably didn't know anything other than what the the angel delivered to them. They weren't like learned and trained in understanding the scriptures. We'll have those fears. Somebody's going to ask me about science and how it combines with the Bible and the creation story. And and someone's going to ask me about Buddhism or atheism or all these evolution and all these things that I'm not sure I could explain very well right now. Most of the time it doesn't happen. Most of the time people don't ask you stuff like that. They will. And I've had people ask me, but the majority of the time it doesn't happen. It's our fear leading us to a place that we're not taking steps of faith. You don't, don't need to know everything. You just need to be able to communicate a little that you do know. (laughs) Jesus loves you. You can leave it at that. Pray for someone. Say, hey, can I, can I pray for you uh, about, is there something that you're going through right now? Can I pray for you over the holidays? Sometimes we overcomplicate it and our minds play tricks on us. But it's a simple message given to simple people. And God uses these simple shepherds to get the message across. And everybody who heard it marveled. It goes on, verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
<laughs> we can only imagine what she's thinking about, right? Like, okay, first an angel comes to me. Um, she's probably, some say as young as 15, others say as old as 20. We really don't know how old she is. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us, but you know, she's a young woman, uh, and, and, and she got a promise that she's going to, to give birth to the Messiah, the savior of the world. She's got angels talking to her. Now these shepherds got angels talking to them and she's having this baby in a manger and here these guys come out of nowhere and, and there's a lot to ponder there. There's a lot to think about. So she's thinking about like the extent of this, like, how am I going to raise the Messiah? Like, how is that going to work out? How, how am I going to be, you know, an imperfect mom raising a perfect being. I'm sure there's a lot that's going through her mind right now. She just had to had to process everything. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, it says, "And when 8 days were completed uh completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb." Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young Pigeon. So on the eighth day, Jesus, he gets circumcised. He goes through this purification ceremony. Um, uh, and they do the whole deal, provide sacrifices, everything. Why would Jesus do this? Well, first of all, he said in Matthew chapter five that he came to fulfill the law. Okay. Everything that was written in Leviticus, Jesus had to live by it. He was the perfect, unblemished, unspotted lamb. Now they had the ceremony, uh, and we see it in Leviticus chapter 12 described, um, they had this ceremony for the males uh, because basically it was a recognition that each man or woman is born into sin and they carry that sinful nature of Adam. And the only way they can be in relationship with God is through the shed blood of animals. OK, so Jesus, he didn't do this because he was born into sin. He wasn't born of a man. He was born of a woman and conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do this because he was born a sinner. He did this to relate to sinners, okay? He did this to meet mankind where they were at. This was part of God's plan from the beginning, and Jesus had to fulfill the word to a T. So they provide sacrifices and accomplish the ceremonial purification process, as well as getting circumcised, as we read. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So the Holy Spirit spoke to Simeon and says, hey, you're going to see the Messiah. This must have been an amazing experience, even just to hear that from the spirits uh, from the spirit, let alone it actually happens right in front of them. 
I don't think we understand how huge of a privilege this was. The whole nation had been waiting for this specific moment since the beginning of their existence. This truly was the greatest privilege he could ever experience. That's point number five. To witness the greatest gift is the greatest privilege. To witness the greatest gift is the greatest privilege. I don't think we can understand or really empathize with with Simeon, especially the prophets of old. They've been speaking about this for centuries. Everything they're talking about really is wrapped up around Jesus coming on the scene, whether it be the first time or the second time. They're waiting for Jesus to come. They're waiting for the Messiah, hoping that it happens in their lives, a lifetime. God is talking to them about it constantly. In Hebrews chapter 11... The author of Hebrews talks about this specifically, often referred to as the hall of faith. We see all these uh, amazing saints of old from the Old Testament uh, and how they walked by faith in their relationship with the Lord. But uh, he gets to the point towards the end of this chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it says, and what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of meekness weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. He says, look at all these things the saints of old walked through. They've walked through torturous circumstances, almost being eaten alive by animals, hiding in caves and dens and doing all these things, literally being persecuted and tortured. And they did all this in hopes that they would see the promise. The promise of what? The promise of Messiah coming on the scene. The promise of the mystery of the gospel being revealed to the Gentiles. The promises of God in their entirety, specifically as they pertain to the free gift of salvation. This was something that they were waiting for constantly, that they longed for. We just want to see the promise fulfilled. And Simeon got to see it. And Simeon got to see the promise. But you know what? We get to live in the promise. We get to live in the promise of the Messiah already having come on the scene, dying for our sins, that we can be in this season of grace. And I don't think we consider the significance of this. We're in a season of grace with God. We're not under the law. Salvation, this time period is the easiest time period ever in history 
to get saved. There will be no other time in history that's easier to get saved during this, uh, except during this dispensation of grace. Now, the next thing, the next uh, dispensation we have, you'll have the tribulation and the millennial reign. Tribulation, we talked about it the last couple of weeks. It is not going to be an easy time to get saved. We don't understand, or at least we don't often consider and, and ponder the magnitude of the season of grace that we're in, that we get to see the fulfillment of the Messiah, that Jesus already came, He already died, He already rose from the dead so that we could enter into eternal life. We can witness this. We can experience this. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, John talks about this, witnessing Christ, seeing him, having experiences with him, knowing him intimately. He says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father uh, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and our and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. John saying, look. Guys, we've handled this like we've touched him. We've seen him. We've talked to him. We, we saw the Messiah come. We saw him die. We saw him raised from the dead. We'd ex- we've experienced all of this. And because of this, we can have fellowship with God. And we invite you into that fellowship. Why? So you can witness it. So that you can hear it. So that you can see it. So that you can experience it. Truly, God has given us a gift. And yes, sending his only son... But he didn't just send his son to die on the cross for us. He sent his son to dwell in us. For those who receive Christ, we truly can experience and walk through life with Christ all day, every day. This is such an amazing gift that we ought not take for granted. We should make the most of it. Sadly, We often take for granted what many spent their lives waiting for this event to happen. But we get it. We get to witness it. We have this privilege and it's such a privilege. We can hear, we can see, we can can touch spiritually, we can experience the fullness of what it means to be in fellowship with God. Luke chapter 2. That's where we'll close. Verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In other words, this is a prophecy. Hey, hey. There's going to be many that fall and many that rise. There's going to be many that don't accept Jesus and there are going to be others that do. Mary, yes, as much as this is the greatest gift that you've ever received, this is also going to cause you more pain than you could ever imagine. Why? Because the Messiah, yes, he'll be birthed through you. Yes, he's going to be the savior of the world, but he's also going to be a completely innocent man and you're going to have to watch him get tortured to death. I couldn't imagine watching a child Get tortured like Christ did. 
So as much of a blessing and a privilege this was for Mary, it was the most painful thing she could ever experience. But that's often the reality of this gift. The Lord offers us this free gift. It's the greatest gift. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with ups and downs, with highs and lows, with seasons of blessings and seasons of trials. Now we can trust that God will work everything out together for his good and for our good, but that doesn't take the fact uh, away that there are difficult times in our Christian walk. The Lord wants us to receive this gift because he loves us so much and he sent us this gift. Because he wants to be in fellowship with us so much. But we have the opportunity to respond to the gift however we please. Do we make the most out of this gift? Do we truly ponder the significance? Do we walk around praising so grateful for this gift that God's given us? Or do we squander it? Do we, do we neglect it? Do we grow dull and say, you know, yeah, I've been saved for decades now. And it's like things just aren't exciting anymore. If that's where you're at and your excitement and zeal for the Lord is kind of dulled down a little bit, I encourage you, pray and even come up and and get prayer after the last song. But that's not the state that God wants us to be in. He wants us to be ecstatic about the greatest gift. The Christmas story should never grow dull. It's the greatest story that's ever told. Every time we hear it, there should be newfound excitement, newfound zeal. You know what the shepherds did? After they left, it said they were excited. They continued on sharing this message. They didn't allow their faith to grow dull. They they allowed it to, to, to build and build and build and become something that caused more zeal and, and more excitement. And that's the reality of our faith. If we're responding to this greatest gift the way we should, there should be that excitement. There should be that desire to, to tell people about Jesus. How selfish would we have to be to not share the greatest gift with someone? If we've truly experienced it. It really comes down to that. To, to, to selfishness. And I understand the fear and I understand all of that. I get afraid too. Every time I come up here, I get afraid. You guys have no idea. Every single time. Seriously. Um, I'm like wigging out in the back every single time. Even between services. It just happens all the time. But the reality of it is, is if we love the Lord the way we claim to, and the way maybe we believe to, then the evidence of that is going to be, yes, zeal and excitement about his gift, but also sharing that gift with others. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this gift, God, and it's just that. It's such an amazing gift. Lord, I pray as we continue on through this Christmas and and Advent season, Lord, that we would really ponder and meditate on the significance of of what um, God the Father did in sending uh, you, God the Son, to, to... to save us from ourselves and our circumstances and and give us life abundant now and life eternal uh, after this, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't squander this gift, that we would make the most of it, that it wouldn't be something like we do with material possessions and um, throwing it out in the dump or or I'm going to neglect it after a couple seasons. The excitement's done. I pray that that would never happen for anyone in this room, that you would just give us that zeal and excitement, that we would make the most of this gift and we would share it with others. We love you because you 
first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.